This is episode 10 of the Inner Game of Aging podcast. Welcome to the Inner Game of Aging podcast, helping you to discover how to be older without growing old. And here's your host, turning this whole idea of aging upside down, Lee Mowat. Welcome and thank you for joining us on episode 10 of the Inner Game of Aging podcast. You know, I am awfully appreciative of the listeners of this podcast and want to do all I can to add value to their lives in these episodes. To help me do that, your comments and feedback are essential for me. You can leave comments about this particular episode at the following URL, inner game of aging, or one word, dot com forward slash IGA10. But right now, I want to move on to today's content. I'm excited about it. For today's episode, I am speaking with Julie Vita and Alicia Dwyer. They are, respectively, the producer and director of a video that is sweeping across the nation. It's called 9 to 90. If you haven't seen this particular video, the show notes page for this episode will give you information as to how you can see this video. It is a powerful tearjerker that encourages viewers to examine the end-of-life process for themselves and for their family members. For the benefit of those who have not yet seen this powerful movie, I want to read a paragraph from the video's website, the link will be in the show notes page, that essentially describes this movie. 9 to 90 is the love story of Phyllis and Joe Sabatini, who at the age of 89 and 90 live in the home of their daughter and son-in-law where they relish time with their young granddaughter, Jacqueline. But as the family struggles to make ends meet and the grandparents' health creates problems that escalate, Phyllis becomes determined to free her daughter from the burdens of caring for everyone from 9 to 90 years old. When Phyllis makes a difficult decision to move 3,000 miles away to live with their other daughter, she faces parting from Joe, her husband of 62 years. While Joe has become resigned to his ailments, Phyllis yearns to live with agency and independence, even with the limited resources that she has. And the couple's surprising choices ignite bigger conversations about how to age with dignity. Now, the 9 to 90 website has lots of other tidbits of information about the movie, and I will have a link to it in my show notes page for this episode. This 30-minute video has won many accolades and awards thus far, as you can see on the website. The discussion you are about to hear is a behind-the-scenes chat of the things that went on during the making of this, the feelings and lessons learned by all those involved, and the cultural impact that the video is making. Today, I am speaking with... Both the producer 
Julie Visa. Is did I did I pronounce that right? Pizza, like pizza. Pizza. Okay. And Alyssa Dwyer. Did I? Alicia Dwyer. Alicia. That's right, Alicia. Thank Alicia you for helping Dwyer. me. Thank you for helping me. They are the producer and director of a film that's making impact and changing how we as a culture approach and discuss end-of-life issues. This will ultimately affect all of us. So they're doing some very important work that I wanted to expose and share on the Inner Game of Aging podcast. The video I'm referring to is the 9 to 90 video, which is distributed by New Day Films and has aired on PBS, endorsed by AARP, is being shown across the nation in so many senior centers and other venues. How are you two doing today? Very well. Doing great. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. I'm very appreciative of, of you being here to discuss the film with us. How old is that film? When did it come out? Uh, it actually aired for the first time on television in uh, January. From January through February, it had a national release and played throughout the, that month. Um, but we actually filmed it uh, a couple of years ago with so, my family here. Okay. Now, Julie, it was actually your family that was shown in the video. I want to speak more about that later on. You know. And in fact, you actually appear in the video. And so... He sure does. <laughs> <laughs> so, at the beginning, she did great. Oh, I can imagine. So, how did this all come about? You guys, you know, came together and produced this, but that's just that's starting in the middle of the story. Start us at the beginning of this story. How did it all happen? <laughs> um, well, uh, Alicia and I have been working together for some time now. So we both work together and we have um, been friends for a while. When my mom, my, my grandparents were living out here in California with my aunt and uncle who live um, just two hours away from where I am in Los Angeles um, in the desert. And, um, you know, I would go and visit them once a month. And my parents were living in Philadelphia at the time, which was 3,000 miles away from where we are now. And... Uh, my mom and my aunt were having to really deal with the care of my grandparents who, as they aged, were having to, you know, were, were dealing with more and more health issues. Um, and my aunt at the time had a nine-year-old daughter, um, a daughter who was nine years old. And my mom and my aunt would deal with a lot of the services and doctors and healthcare decisions remotely. Uh, and my mom called me one day and said, you know, um, we're coming out and we're going to talk with grandma and grandpa about maybe coming back east um, or bringing just grandma back east. And I remember thinking, wow, that's a major decision. I don't know if people have thought about the consequences about that. And so Alicia and I um, were sitting in my driveway at the time in the car and, and we were talking about it. And I said, you know, Alicia, I don't know what's going to happen. But if we wanted to document this and, and make a film out of it, I think now's the time, and um, she and I talked about it, and you agreed. I think you were just like, yeah, okay, let's, let's do it. Um, I knew that, that this was important to Julie, but then when we talked about sort of the, the bigger picture of just what a big decision this would be for her family, I realized, yeah, this is, this, this is an important story. This is, 
possibly, you know, but when you start these things in documentary, these kinds of documentaries where something's happening now and unfolding, you really don't know. <laughs> you, you start kind of out in faith that, that there's something there that's going to form a story that, 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 that me, needs to be shared with the world. So we didn't know, and we took a chance. And Julie, your family has had to struggle with end-of-life issues. Were you prepared for these discussions? You know, how did, what was your emotional reaction? I can't imagine. I was brought to tears at for a certain point in the video. I can't imagine your reaction to seeing this unfold in front of you. Yeah. I, I mean, I won't speak for everyone, but I would say that I think no matter how prepared you think you are, there's always the next unknown that you're not prepared for. Um, and I, and I think there was just, fortunately, my grandmother, I think was the person who kind of guided us through that process. Um, and I think the one thing that I learned in particular was how to listen, um, how to listen. Wow. <laughs> and because everyone had their thoughts and opinions. And even though they may have had the best intentions, it really came down to what were the decisions that my grandparents were making? What was it that they really wanted? And not just. I want to go here, I want to go there, but how, what, well, you know, it also was about how they wanted to um, experience, you know, their end of life. Um, and we talk a little bit about um, end of life care and, and how to live out, more about how to live out the end of your life versus, you know, what, what the end of life process is. And I think my grandmother really kind of, she exemplified that. And she, she was able to express that in a way that I think for us, you know, I, when I have to talk about it with my parents, I recoil. My grandmother, she's more like, well, this is what I want. This is what we're going to do. And she embraced it. Um, and she continues to embrace it. And I think that was such a big lesson for me in particular. I think there's an age where you, you know, you begin to see your grandparents or your parents start to age and you try to figure out what you're going to do for them. And there's also that question of what are you going to do for yourself? Yeah. And, yeah. and I, you know, I felt very fortunate to have a friend to be able to talk through this process with, even while we were making the film. And Alicia, I think, has also challenged me to think about certain things um, that I, you know, was hesitant to express. And it was much easier to talk about in terms of what was happening with my grandmother or my parents than it was for myself. And I think the biggest thing that, that shifted for me was once we started to talk about it, it wasn't as hard as just having to think about talking about it. Oh, yes, yes. We we often make problems much worse before we get there than they really are. You know, that's the nature of the human mind. Did you realize, did either of you realize what you were giving to our culture as you were filming this? Did you realize the gift you were giving to our culture? <laughs> no, I don't think we had any idea. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't think we... I think we... We, we decided to do because making a movie is like a, a crazy bunch of strange work and and you have to be crazy to do it and so we did know that there was something worth doing there uh, but we weren't exactly sure what it was and then it's like this process of distillation I'm just curious as to your reaction that that you have when you see other people reacting to it. This is your work. This is, you know, how does that feel to you? You know, it's amazing. It's really, we do make movies to communicate with people, to move people. Sure. But 
such a long process to make them. It takes years often. And it's such a fractured process. You know, you film this little piece here, and sometimes the audio you film a little bit separately, for, even from the picture you're going to put with that audio. It is such a fractured process. And so then when you finally have that moment where you show the movie in its entirety to an audience and uh -huh. you watch React, reacting in real time, and then they, they are able to speak with you afterwards. It is really an incredible thing for us. I think it's, it's, it's suddenly after years in that, in those moments, it's the, it's the, it's the coming together of every, of why we do what we do. And to be able to take people to a special place where they can maybe think about their own family or their own situation in a new way or where mm -hmm. they can uh, maybe push a past a little bit of fear that they have about talking about what they want with their family for end-of-life care or um, talking with uh, loved ones about death. Mm. Uh, things like that, that we don't talk about very much, I find, right. at least in my experience of American culture. Um you know, I've experienced this myself with my with my own father's illness and death. I just I I remember thinking to myself, "Wow, everyone goes through this. Everyone loses a loved one, and yet it yes. seems completely new. It seems I mean, it seems like it's coming out of nowhere. <laughs> and oh it's my just, goodness! Why is this so? Why am I so unprepared for this? I, I know that it, we're unprepared in a certain way because death, like birth, is is sort of unimaginable. But Julie, how did you feel watching the full entire movie for the first time? That must have been an experience. <laughs> I remember the very first cut Alicia showed me, and we were actually in Mexico, and it was just a small group of us, maybe four of us, and we all sat around the computer and watched it. And I remember trying not to cry um, and being so emotionally taken uh, not only about watching my family and the process, but the amount of respect and care that Alicia gave to helping craft the story in a way that was really tender. But, but I remember the, actually the first time my grandmother watched it um, with my family. Ah. My family cried, and my grandmother, because at that point my grandfather had already passed, and she kept uh -huh. my grandfather as if he was still there. And that was... It was such a gift because she's still so vibrant and alive and present and connected. Um, yes, yes. Seemed like a fireball in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, uh, let me get to some of the issues that this film addresses because uh, the message of this film is quite powerful, and it is that we are we need to prepare ourselves to better handle the end of life process to be able to discuss with those around us our own end-of-life process, the end-of-life process that others are looking for themselves, the ones we love. And why do you think that discussing this is so scary in our culture? What, what, what answer would you give to this? <laughs> um, I think, you know, right off the bat, death is scary for a lot of people. And if more people had near death experiences, I wonder if that would change our conversation on death. 
Yeah, well, so. I think that's, that's exactly right. Once you've experienced it, it's not so scary. And I think the same thing is true for the conversation. Once you start talking about it, it's not so overwhelming. It's not so scary. It's not so daunting. It's it's that barrier that we have of the fear of the unknown, of the fear of not you know being prepared, of all of these fears, no matter what they are, that prevents us, I, a lot of people, I think, from even starting that conversation. But I know for mm. me that once we started talking about it, oh, it's not as scary. And, mm. and the resources, even if it feels overwhelming, there's a ton of possibility. And it's just about, Absolutely. A, first talking about it and being okay with all of my uncertainties about it. And then you know, figuring out how to sort of walk through it on my terms, not on everyone else's terms. Ah, that's an important fact right there. And, so. and I didn't, you know, I, I was challenged by that for sure. You know, as much, like I said earlier, it was much easier to talk about my grandmother or to talk about my parents than it was for me to talk about myself. I remember you saying how afraid you were of death. Yeah, you were like, I, I am really afraid of it, and I, uh, yeah, no, I remember that. I remember you were, you were. That was something that was. I remember being like, oh, you're so, <laughs> really. Yeah. Are, do you still feel the same way, Julie, about death? Has the doing the film changed your feeling about your own death? You know what? What I think actually helped change is right after the film, we did um, we worked with Conversation Project, um, and we did another piece called What's Next, which is on our website. And um, Alicia had us start just doing the um, the Conversation uh, Project uh, starter kit. And, yes. Yes. Um, and we did it, my parents and I sat down by ourselves, and we just started writing out our thoughts. And I realized that once <laughs> my thoughts didn't have to be so contained in the walls of my mind and, mm -hmm. um, you know, like I was saying earlier, and, and, and captured in my fear, and that there was a, a, a way for me to sort of express them and, and just allow them to be, um, I realized that what I what part of what I was fear, what I was most afraid of was the unknown of not just death but the process of what process of death. Um, okay. And allowing there to be a variety of options, and also that one decision that I make doesn't have to be the final decision. That I can That's right. I decide that I want to you know a DNR. I do not resuscitate. I can change that at some point. And I think for a lot of people that wasn't always clear. I know that for my parents that wasn't clear. Um, that, oh, right, once you make this one decision, it's not set in stone. You can you can change your mind. And that, and I think, you know, I just turned 45 and thinking that, oh, right, you know, the decision I made today doesn't have to be true in five years from now or 25 years from now. That can continue. Mm -hmm. And I, and, and that was reassuring to me and knowing that it was, it's about a process and not about one single decision. I think both of you said something that caught me. We are more afraid of approaching the process than we would be going through it if we just went through it. Yeah, Our fears stop us from approaching our barriers, but touching our barriers starts to relieve that fear and tries to push us through those barriers. This is most certainly the case with death from my experience. Yeah. Um, okay. I walked away from my accident very 
very nonchalant about my own death. Do you feel the same way about your own death after this movie? No, I don't feel the same way about it. Um, I think actually, in a way, having gone through the process has just shed more light on um, alleviating the fear. And not to say that I don't mm-hmm. feel fear in some ways. I think what I fear sure. is not living my life as fully as I want to. That's mostly what I fear. That is the fear. For me, that is the fear. How about you, Lisa? How's this, how has this changed your feeling of your own death? How has this project changed the feeling of your own death? Uh, I, think I, I think I do feel, since making the film, I think I do feel a little less afraid of, of dying. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Yeah, that was, I think maybe that was part of, that's part of a longer process that started. Yeah, absolutely. My absolutely. Sick. My father had passed away before we started making this film, and I, I brought to it the things that had come up for me. And going through that ah, yes. in my own way. And so that was probably an important experience to go through in order to do this film successfully. I can imagine that being the case. And yeah. so um I, I think that's why that, I saw Phyllis, Julie's grandmother, being so brave in her in her own way, with her fourth grade education, with her South Philly accent, uh <laughs> What is she? Four foot ten, nine, four foot eight, four foot eight. Uh, you know, being her, being able to lead her family in a certain way in this incredibly important process of saying goodbye and yes. and of choosing how how to live through the, the that goodbye. Uh, mm. That. I was like, wow, that, that, because, because I had been so afraid to talk about death with my father as he was dying. Um, as he was dying. Interesting. It Interesting. It was really important for me to then be able to see someone who was facing it in her, you know, in her, in her husband, facing it in herself and mm-hmm. who was, uh, the matriarch of a very, very loving family. Um, and mm-hmm. your tightly knit family, as is mine, but to see her have that take a kind of a leadership role. I mean, I felt like I was watching, um, you know, a spiritual leader in a certain way, somebody who was interesting, to, interesting to, to do the hard thing that is the right thing in her, mm-hmm. which is to articulate what she wanted to, um, to. To, to say, no, we have to talk about this. Um, yeah. To tell the people in her life that she loves them. Uh, you know, Interesting. Those, those, one, of the, one of the things that impressed me very much when I was looking at the film was when the nine-year-old, what was your, the, your niece's um, name again? I forget. Could you speak it? Jacqueline. Jacqueline. She was... They were distributing jewelry, and Jacqueline was saying, "Why are you doing this? You're not dying." You know, um, it was for me. It was a sense of denial that you know that was rather innocent. Things are the way they are now. You are here now. Why are you preparing to not be here? Yeah, you know, um, I saw that question in what. Jacqueline was saying, why are you preparing to not be here? 
you know, she's young. She doesn't quite understand that we all must do this. And it came across, that moment in the video came across when Jacqueline was asking, Grandma, why are you preparing to not be here? Are you saying goodbye now? You know, for some reason or other that I can't quite put words to, that spot hit me. You know, I have children myself. They're grown children. But, uh, you know, it just, how do children see this? Yeah. That that moment hit me too so much. I was filming it, and I was I was actually uh, holding the microphone, and I my I just yeah there were tears dripping, <laughs> dripping down into <laughs> headphones around my neck, and I um, I think the thing that that we as we talked about it afterwards that that struck us so much is that Grandma Phyllis was able to speak the truth about what was happening in the present moment, and so was Jacqueline. She was able to say, wait a minute, is this what's going on? Is this her passing away ceremony? You know? Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's going, you know, like she was trying to figure it out, and what we kind of realized is that the youngest and the oldest were able to actually talk about what was going on and try to figure it out, and all of the uh-huh. those of us who were in the middle years were like, <laughs> we weren't necessarily able to talk about things in such a straightforward way and that was so interesting to see and that's the nine to nine now why is it why is it that our society is so what could we do in our society to make this whole process more easily discussed your film takes us in the right direction for that but what as a society can we change about ourselves to make this process more discussable is there any ideas? You guys have just gone through a process, a project, where you expose the hardship we all have in talking about the end of life. During this journey, have you spotted anything that could make it easier for us as a culture to embrace this even better? You know, after we, we screen the film, almost inevitably we have a handful of people who come up to us right away. First they say thank you, and they want to say thank you to Phyllis. And then the next thing they say is, I want to go home and call my dad. I want to go home and call my mom. I want to go home and call my family member. Um, and, I, and I remember actually hearing um, some early reports that until some women you know, in the 70s started to talk about breast cancer, breast cancer was a taboo. People just didn't talk about it. And um, you know, there, there wasn't a change in, 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 you know, the medical uh, advances really didn't start to take effect until people started to talk about it, until the exposure happened where um, it was out in the open. And I think mm-hmm. some, in some ways, a lot of things are happening in the background and more things could happen. But until we're able to talk about it and people can s- witness other people talking about it so that it frees them up to be able to have mm. and see it and then <laughs> maybe you know let go of some of the fear or at least have more willingness to take that next step um i think really the first step is to witness other people talk about it and in a way i feel like that's the biggest gift that my grandmother gave me and in a way i feel like it's the gift that we're able to give back to people who see the film is you know no matter and you know a lot of people when we actually were um, funded to make the film, they really wanted us to go back to Philadelphia with my grandmother and see what happened. And for us, it was very much about the conversation and the decision. And that no, no one decision was the right decision 
after this. You know, it was open to discussion for anything that could happen. Mm-hmm. And really what it was about was starting that conversation. What does that look like? And, my, and, and, and you know, it may look different for every person or family or friend. For us, this is what it looked like. And I think making, making it more um, transparent, making it more available for other people to see that we can have this conversation and it doesn't have to be scary. It can still be scary, but it can still happen. Um, And I think just being able to witness that is the first step. So if I, if I understand your answer, people need models to follow. This movie provides a model and inspiration for others, gives them idea that this can be done. You guys are the early adopters of this concept. The, you know, the late adopters will come along like myself, and then the majority will come along. It's almost in the same way that the smartphone has been introduced into our culture. Mm-hmm. You know, the early adopters have this device that does all sorts of magic, and you know, they've infused this technology throughout the rest of the culture. You guys are the early adopters trying to make death a different topic to talk about than what it has been. So, you know, when I saw this movie, I say, my goodness, everybody needs to see this. However they are affected by it, that's the way it should affect them. I can't prescribe to others how this movie should affect you or you or what you'll get out of it. But to expose this into our culture answers my question. How do we make the discussion of death less scary? Well, you guys have taken the first step. Another question for you. In taking care of our elders, you know, Julie, you say you're 45. I don't know how old you are, Alicia. <laughs> In taking care of our elders, what sort of role should society play in taking care of our elders? This is such a, an important topic, and it really, as we, you know, when we were making the film, it was so much a personal thing was about Julie's family. But then as you, you know, start asking the questions, why is it necessary that they have to consider splitting up two people who've been married for 62 years, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast? Mm-hmm. Because there are, you know, the, it, they they had trouble figuring out services that could support them being cared for together in the same family home. And that really struck a chord in me of like, wow, as a society, what, what are we doing that, that we're forcing families to make these kinds of decisions? Um, or what are we not doing that we could be doing? And I had the I think that's a more relevant question. Living in Europe as a teenager and seeing that there are different ways that the society can decide to care for uh, basic mm-hmm. needs around health, education, and um, and just caregiving. And so I don't I know I know that it doesn't have to be the way that it is here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, and so it really, it, and, and Julie and I would talk about this and we, 
mm-hmm. and we decided that we, you know, we hoped that even though our film isn't the kind of film that lays out, you know, like a policy change agenda, yeah, that yeah. we could contribute to the conversation about what we can be doing. And when we were able to connect with some organizations like the Domestic Workers Alliance and their Caring Across Generations effort um, to see how they are advocating for assistance for people on a national level if you need to have help um, with paying for Mm -hmm. care in the home, um, that that perhaps that should be something that we're all paying into and then that we get to, uh, you know, that that, because that, I, we just went through it myself, that the burden, my grandmother needs 24-hour care right now, the burden of paying mm. for that at home, it makes it so that you, it's cheaper for her to go into an institution. And that was an incredibly difficult, wow. difficult process for my family to go through, to wrestle with this. And it's just like, come on, we got to get together as a society. We got to figure out what the needs are for caring for ourselves as we get older and we gotta, we gotta figure out. We can do this. We can send people to the moon. We can do, do this. I, I'm, I'm in full agreement here. We can, we can do this. The role of the caregiver is becoming more and more important, and more and more stressful, and more and more necessary. You know, I wanted to discuss your experiences, especially Julie, who's had to do some caregiving inside of her family, or the family has had to do some caregiving. The One of the things I te- seem to be connecting myself with more of as an issue is caregiver fatigue. One of the reasons why your parents had to be separated was because, if I understand correctly, because of caregiver fatigue, which is a big problem. Taking care of the caregiver is an issue. You know, how do you see that, Julie? No, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, we've talked about this a lot. I mean, watching, you know, for my aunt, who at the time had a nine-year-old daughter, it was, how do I take care of my daughter? How do I take care of my husband and my family while I'm taking care of both my parents who are, you know, living in the house and oftentimes have doctor's appointments at, you know, at the same time, but in two different places and have to pick up my daughter from mm-hmm. school and then have to put dinner on the table at the end of the night. And, you know, my aunt also mm-hmm. worked part-time. So, you know, that was, and there were times where, you know, my grandfather, I remember, um, had to go to the hospital and my uncle was away at work and my aunt had to go pick up Jacqueline at school. And I was two hours away and my aunt called me and she said, you know, can you either go to the hospital and talk to the doctor with grandpa or can you go pick up Jacqueline at school? Um, you know, so, and, I, and I had to figure out how mm-hmm. to get there two hours away in enough time to be able to do one or the other. Um, and so, mm. you know, it was, it's not, it's not always manageable, right? Um, things That's are going right. to fall That's through right. the cracks. And the stress of that, when you, and it's when it's about someone you love, and not wanting to make, you know, a decision that could potentially be, you know, make something more difficult or or, or potentially put someone in harm's way, you're you're constantly trying to, you know, making sacrifices in your own life to be able to take care of someone else. And I think part of that too was there was never this moment to say I'm tired. I can't do it today. Ah. You know, there's never, you never uh-huh. feel like you have that option. 
and and it's not sustainable, you know. And so that was part of the reason why, you know, t you know, having my grandparents, and they were the ones who ultimately made that decision to go into two two separate mm -hmm. um, places to try and make it easier. My grandmother often said, you know, I don't want to be a burden. She didn't want and. I don't know that mm -hmm. we ever felt like she was a burden. It all, I think the process always felt challenging, but it wasn't the person who felt like a burden. Yes, and, yes. You know, and, and figuring out how to take care of yourself and that always felt like tertiary or, you know, like it was always like the fifth thing that was on the list. And by the time you got yes. there, the best thing you could do was go to bed. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I was, you know, and I was, I wasn't the direct caregiver. I was the secondary or a third person who was often in line. But you felt it. And it was still challenging. Mm. But, you know, and I talk about this a lot with Lisa and her mom, too, who, you know, there's just that moment where, you know, you're tired or you, in, in that it, moment you've had enough. And, and it's hard to think, you feel guilty saying that, but it happens. Yes. The I, I just finished speaking with another guest on my podcast, Frank Sampson, who was also talking about the the tremendous problem of caregiver fatigue, because we all want to do and we feel guilty for not doing, but we can't do all that we think we're supposed to do, and it becomes a burden on us. It's not our loved ones, but trying to be what we think we're supposed to be to our loved ones can be very burdening to us as people and can compromise the care that we are giving. And so, um, you know, I'm starting to see that problem rear its ugly head as well. It's, it's different. Now, another question I want to ask you, I couldn't determine this from the film, but I get a sense that there are gender differences when it comes to caregiving. Yeah, um, that men step up the plate for different tasks than women tend to step up to the plate for. Do any of you have any words on that or any sense of that? It's just another area that I'm exploring in when it comes to caregiving. Well, we we did um, we did went in after we were filming we. We did a little research, and we and we found that um, yeah, more more family caregivers and professional caregivers are women than are men. Um, it, some numbers are like sixty six percent are women. So you know it, there certainly is a skew in that direction um, within mm -hmm. Julie's family. That, find that, that we witnessed um, that the Mm -hmm. The women were definitely um, involved, um, very much so in the, in the caregiving, and and then when I sort of came to realize this bigger picture that if you look at, um, you called it the graying of America, right? The the, the mm -hmm. booming of our of our older population, um, women mm -hmm. live longer, so they they, you know are a majority of the folks who are aging, and then they are also a majority of the people who are caring for the older people. So aging really is a women's issue. That's what I sort of came <laughs> to, to realize. I'm not sure if I would agree with you there. I, I feel myself getting older. <laughs> I find myself getting older, and I'm not a woman. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, no, it's everybody's issue, absolutely. Um, but you certainly can, can mm -hmm. look at the gender lens and um, 
and you know, I mean, I certainly see it in my own families that, um, you know, the I see it in the, mine too. The, the the caregiving aspect um, affects affects women definitely, and then you know, it gets tied into those issues of you know, what do we expect from people, right? Do you expect men yeah. to take off from work to care for someone? Do you expect women to take well that comes down to the cultural stereotypes that we have around caregiving you know these cultural stereotypes around caregiving around genders and the roles that we all play you know like a lot of these stereotypes need to be explored and challenged which is what the inner game of aging is all about as it relates to aging you know like it's we are taught the stereotypes that control us and our connection to these stereotypes play a large factor in who and what we become you know the you know my business is trying to disconnect the stereotypes that surround us from how we teach our own inner selves and well, so one thing that's so um, interesting about that is that in some cases in my experience uh uh a man in the family actually is a great caregiver. And what I would love to see in a rethinking of our priorities around all of this stuff mm-hmm. is to to better enable families to say, okay, who actually wants to do the care? The, and there's different kinds of caregiving. There's the people who are really good at taking Absolutely. care of the finances and the legal aspects. There are people who are really good at following up with the doctors and making those calls and checking in with Medicaid and whatever. And there are people who are really good at being with the person who needs the care um, and, and showing up right. and going on uh, adventures with them and cooking them different kinds of food and, you know, or um, asking right. them what they want to do or whatever. And, and sometimes... Well, you make an important point there, Julie. I mean, excuse me, Alicia, you make an important point because caregiving is not confined to just the hands-on work of caregiving. You know, so the women may be stronger at the hands-on work. That could be a stereotypical statement that I'm making or a cultural statement I'm making. But there are services needed that, like financial services or just running errands and chores or handling peripheral issues that men and women equally are responsible for and capable of handling. Yeah, um, so And supporting the caregiver, just being able to support the caregiver is an important issue. Yeah here yeah. so and, and being able we to all really would play look a, at a role family and say who's who wants to do what who's good at doing what whose life will actually be enhanced by by participating mm. in this care in this way as opposed to it all sort of falling by default on on somebody in particular you know i mean i i think that was okay. another really interesting thing that we learned from um listening to a podcast actually um this uh, woman was talking about that, you know, developmental stages are not just for children, that adults go through developmental stages as well. And that caring for our older family members is one of the biggest life experiences actually that we can have and that we grow from that, that it's part of our development in a way to do that. And so, you know, I, that's where I'd love to 
to have instead of being sort of like unprepared for all of this and then to have so little support for it or not know exactly how to access that support or be unable to afford it i'd love to start these conversations earlier and and uh, enable families to get better support and be able to actually experience this process of caring for each other in a way that is part of our own development and so that it doesn't feel like oh my gosh i'm not able to 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 be a good person at work now because i have to do this but actually I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And this is part of I like what you said. I I I like what you said. I and I'm going to agree wholeheartedly with it. Caring for those we love is part of who we all are or should be. There are various ways of caring for that. I may care for my loved ones differently than you may care. I may emphasize one thing, you may emphasize another. But Loving is part of who we are, and caring for that love, caring for that relationship is part of who we are. It makes us fuller people. And as a society, we have to pay attention to that as a society. And we have to facilitate that development in our citizens to enable them to develop fully, to feel the pain of a loved one passing successfully. Um, to be able to put the facilities in place for them to discuss the things they need to discuss so that dignified death is possible, you know. And so, you know, like my own experience, both my parents have passed away. I'm 66 years old. Um, And I watched my wife care for me after a very devastating accident for four months. She brought me back to life. After about a year afterwards, after some soul searching, I had to help her understand that I'm not sure if I have it inside of me to do what she has done for me to bring me back to life. And how does that make me feel? It doesn't make me feel good (laughs) Um, to know that I would have difficulty doing for her what she did for me and care for me. And I saw her stress and strain during the course of that those months, but she was taking care of someone who would ultimately get better. What? How do you feel when you're going to be taking care of someone who's ultimately not going to be getting better? You know, these are differences quite, you know, that can be quite significant. Now, I'd like to ask you both a question, which is going to be difficult, because in this in this video, we are watching Julie's family, a tight knit Italian family, handle. You know, the end-of-life discussions of parents. And kids all gather around, grandkids all gather around to take part of the discussion. And decisions are ultimately made despite the feelings that are going on. But now, in our society today, there's a growing trend toward solo aging. That is, those people who are aging without families around them. Can you speak to that? Um, yeah, I, I, I think I can actually personally speak to that because I don't have children. Um, I'm an only child. And so, you know, I Jacqueline is probably my closest uh, next of kin uh, relative. And certainly there aren't the expectations or the assumptions that she's going to take care of me. 
And I wouldn't want to put that on her either. One of the screenings that we had was up in uh, in Maine, and we got to meet a few people who were living there um, alone, and some people had children but maybe were living in another state, and some people um, didn't have children and their spouses had already passed. And they talked about, you know, at this one community center we went to, this is the one time of the week that they actually go out and interact with everyone. And for some of them, that was exactly how they wanted it. You know, and for others, it was, mm-hmm. this is what I need in order to be able to get the resources that I have. But, you know, it's a small enough community, and it's also has a larger aging population, so there's support there for that to happen. But I know that that doesn't exist everywhere. Um, and I think, you know, That's sometimes, right. you know, I have the, the fortune of some foresight in being able to look forward to that. Um, but I think a lot of times mm-hmm. we're unprepared, and I'm sure things are going to come up that I will be unprepared for or thought I was unprepared for and we'll have to figure out how to balance that. Especially in the face of the solely the solo aging phenomena that's creeping up in the country. Many people are aging now without the benefit of family around them. And that's going to create alternate problems. Not problems that are impossible to solve, but problems that we're not accustomed to, problems that we're not accustomed to solving. Yeah. It's not that there's no solution, it's just that we haven't thought mm-hmm. of it already. Yeah. And so when I watched the nine to ninety video, I said, Thank goodness for all those people who have good families around them, as your grandparents did. And but there are so many, you know, mm-hmm. that don't. And I grow concerned for them after watching the 9 to 90 video and want them to start their discussions as well. Yeah. You know, so like you have just suggested, Julie. So it's it's very interesting to see the, the shape that our culture is, cha- is taking over these past 20 years and the next 20 years. You know, with the silver tsunami coming up, the issues that we'll have <laughs> to face. It's, I really believe that um, I'm a baby boomer and I really believe that the baby boomers will solve problems and give solutions that we had not yet seen that will ultimately work for our children and grandchildren. I don't know what these solutions are, but uh, the baby boomers have already proved to be quite an innovative bunch <laughs> and the, the, the solutions that we come up with um, can sometimes be rather far sweeping. So I don't expect that the long-standing problems that we have heard about in terms of the silver tsunami um, will impact us as strongly as journalists suggest. But still, this solo aging thing, especially after watching the 9 to 90 video, is started to concern me. Um, you know, just so many of us are aging without the benefit of family and children. Well, I was going to say, you know, um, to sort of echo what you're talking about with baby boomers, my mom is a baby boomer. And, you know, <laughs> hmm. I'm encouraged by the fact that you think that baby boomers are going to continue to innovate, which I think is really important. But then also... Oh, that's, even, I'm convinced. Even aside from any major sort of technology or medical innovations, a lot of it is just modeling. You know, how you do it is how we're going to learn how to do it ourselves and continue to, to right. build on that. And, right. um, you know, sometimes it may need to come from, you know, your children or it may need to come from someone else. But what you do, um, what my parents do and what my grandparents have done 
um, have been models for me and what I can do and to learn from that and then continue to build mm. on that. And so I think it's, it's a gift. It's a gift that we can give back and forth to each other. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, your video is certainly a gift. You know, I'm, how do I expose your video to those of my listeners who have not seen it? There's a, you know, most of my listeners know what this video is about. They're the ones who told me about it, had me crying. And, um, and you know, how, what can I do to help spread the message? Basically, that's my question. What can I do to help well, spread the message? Well, there are a number of ways, and we're excited that you, you want to do that, and we would love for people to see it. Um, one of the things that we have been doing, too, um, along with the film, there is a discussion guide. And so we're really encouraging That's right, community I read groups discussion. Um, to have screenings so that the discussion, um, you know, you can have this discussion at home and we do have resources to do that, but also to help communities have this discussion so that it's happening where in, in a place where you can talk with other people who are maybe in similar situations. Um, you're in New Hampshire, correct? So um, we have done a lot of work with the Endowment for Help, who have been um, major supporters of the film, and they um, have been doing a lot of work in helping get the film out there and have also um, have some copies of the film that they rent out for um, community groups. Um, You can also rent the film on um, on New Day, which is uh, exactly how it sounds. So it's Mm N-E-W-D-A-Y.com. You can come to our website, which is 9to90movie.com. And there are ways that, um, mm-hmm. you know, we would be happy to sort of um, discuss ways that the film could be used in both a community setting and, um, or an educational setting. Um, we also do have the film for sale for private use. Um, you have to contact us directly mm-hmm. for that, um, which is through our website. And primarily what we're encouraging people to do is find ways to have these, to watch the film and have the conversation in a group so that, maybe you don't feel so alone in that process. However, if that's the best, if you prefer mm-hmm. to have it on your own, we certainly understand that as well and they have your own experience. Um, what we're really hoping sure. to do is to find ways for this conversation to really, for this to be to be a catalyst for a conversation and how that can happen on a broader yes. scale. Yes. So um, the two best ways are to go to our site, which is 9to90movie.com. Um, okay. And then also, is that directly the new day? Sure. Um, and then newday.com. I, I will certainly put the links to these things in the show notes page for this episode. What I'm also hoping to do, and I would need your permission to do that, is put copies of the PDF in the show notes page as well, um, so that people can get an idea of what you know what they would be we can asked. Also give you, Anything uh, I can put on my show also notes give page. You a link. Um, or or an embed code for our trailer, so people could watch the two minute trailer sure. on your website if you like. I'll put that in the I'll put that in the in the show notes page as well, uh, and I might also suggest a contest on my listeners. By that I mean I um I often have each guest give away something to my listeners, so. For five of my listeners who leave comments to this particular episode, you will give an, a link that will expire after a while that is issued um, you know, as a reward for leaving comments on how much they liked this particular episode. I can discuss that with you. <laughs> yeah, um, so it's a way for me to get my listeners engaged. Anyone who's heard this and wants to see the film that hasn't seen it yet, leave a comment 
ends, you may be rewarded with a private link that you can access. Yeah, so, um, now you, I ask every one of my guests this next question, but most of my guests are 50, 55, 60. I had a 90 year old on my show. Um, you, Julia, 45. How old are also you, Alicia? 45. Okay. The, the question I ask every guest is, at your age, at 45, what has surprised you most about being 45? <laughs> well, Julie just turned 45, yes, uh, uh, on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> this is called the inner game of aging. We are all aging. No matter, even if you're not in my demographic, you're still aging. What has surprised you most about being 45? Um, I might be a little more general and just say that um, I'm finding the 40s to be way better than the 20s and 30s. Um, certainly may, maybe my younger years, I don't know, I was kind of lucky to just um, really be able to be a kid in a lot of ways. But um, I think I have the benefit of confidence and knowing myself better, knowing what I want, um, and being able to look into the future of where I want to be going a little differently than, you know, I think it was a little bit like what we talked about. I'm not so much worried about death as much as I am about how I'm living my life. Mm. Um, and, may, yes. and my priorities have changed. And I, I'm grateful for that. <laughs> and you enjoy those priorities. You enjoy those priorities more now than when you Definitely. were Definitely. And I think I'm, my yeah, quality yeah, of life so. is going to get better because of that. So, Yeah. Interesting. How about you, Alicia? How about what surprises you most about being the age you are now? <laughs> well, I I have a I have a two year old, so I'm 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 doing a couple different ages at the same time. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm doing forty five, and I'm also you know like like a parent, and um, yeah, twenty five, <laughs> and so. Um, I think I feel I, that re- resonate with you said Julie resonates with me too. I think um, for those of us in this generation, where somehow it took us a little bit longer to get our groove on, <laughs> it's uh-huh. really exciting to have, to have our, our groove on. I mean, it, it in you know in terms of my my craft filmmaking it's so exciting to have been training you know when I was in my 20s and 30s I feel like I was training my craft and 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 now we have been able to really like bring our film you know make these films bring them out um Julie and I have made a couple of films together and it's just a really exciting time uh there's like a lot of a lot of babies being born. Not only my daughter, but uh, our movies, and seeing yeah. them go out into the world and yes. begin to have an effect on the world is just. I mean, it's an amazing. It's an amazing process. So I think that that's what's beautiful. Now I've heard, I've heard both of your answers. I am 66, and I can assure you from listening to you that by the time you get my age, 45 will pass. <laughs> I certainly hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Inner Game of Aging podcast. 
The show notes page contains a lot more information about this video and a few other items as well. You can find the show notes page at theinnergameofaging.com forward slash IGA10. That's I for inner, G for game, and A for aging, 10. I should mention that you can visit the show notes pages of all of our episodes at the following URL. innergameofaging.com forward slash podcasts. That's an S on the end of that. There you will find the listing of all of our released episodes. You can click on any one of them to visit the show notes page and leave a comment for the particular episode you're interested in. You can also email me directly using lee at innergameofaging.com. I am always excited to hear from you. So, until next time. Thanks for listening to the Inner Game of Aging podcast with Lee Mo Watt. Check out more content by going to theinnergameofaging.com. That's theinnergameofaging, no spaces, Stay with us as we learn the many ways of being older without growing old.